Hi, my name's Greg. I'm one of the full-time ministers at OEC, and it's my great privilege and pleasure to be opening up God's Word with you. Um, it'd be great to have God's Word open at John 17, verses 1 to 19. They're the verses we'll be looking at. Every other passage that I refer to will come up on the screen. Won't you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you've spoken in your Son, we thank you for the gift of your spirit as we open up to this particular passage, John 17, as we listen to your son pray to you. We pray that as we do that, we would listen ourselves with open ears and open hearts. Change us, we pray, to become more like him. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Prayer. It is such an astounding gift from God that we can speak to the God who made us, to the God who spun the stars into space and know that he hears and know that he acts. What, what an awesome gift that is. Our prayers really are a barometer of our faith and a window into our soul. They are a barometer of our faith because, well, if we don't pray, then it reveals a lot about our lack of trust in God and our reliance on ourselves. Our prayers reveal really what we think about God, who he is, whether we see him as our heavenly father that we owe everything to, or like a genie in the sky that owes us everything that we desire and want. And our prayers are also a window into our soul, into what we think is important. If you've never done this, let me encourage you to do it. Keep a record of the things that you pray for over the next week or two. Then after a week or two, go back and read them and see what it reveals about what you think is important, because that's what it will do. Is it the glory of God or is it the glory of yourself that really floats your boat? Your prayers will really answer that question for you. But this truth that prayers are a window into our soul is part of what makes looking into this chapter that we're looking at this week and next such a profound thing to do. Now, we've spent eight weeks sitting at the feet of Jesus, spending an evening with him, listening to his words on the eve of his death. So profound a thing to do. Such challenging and great words. But over this week and next, it gets even better than that. We get to listen in on the prayers of Jesus, his private prayer to his heavenly father, just hours before he's betrayed and handed over to be crucified. And in this prayer, we see the beating heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beating heart of God himself. And we get to hear what floats his boat, what makes him tick. And Jesus begins his prayer by praying for glory. For his glory. But it's far from a self-centered prayer that he prays. In fact, in this prayer, we get to see into the very nature of how the Trinity works within himself. How God relates within himself. Jesus says, the time has come. More literally, he says in verse 1, the hour has come. The hour of where the Son of Man will be glorified through his death, through his resurrection, and through his return to the Father. And so he prays, Father, glorify your Son. He's praying that the Father would glorify him in everything that's about to unfold, something that he already knows that God will do, but he still prays it. 
But as Jesus prays this prayer, as I said, we get an insight into the very nature of the relationship within the Trinity, the other person-centeredness of the relationship that is within the Godhead. Now, this is something that has come up a number of times already as we've been spending an evening with Jesus. But now is a time where I want to stop and reflect on the profound thing that we see as we look into the relationship between the Father, the Son and the Spirit. Have a look at what we see of the relationship between the Father and the Son in in this prayer. Jesus prays, yes, that he'll be glorified, but only so that the Father would be honoured and glorified. As I said at the start of this talk, our prayers are a window to our soul. And here we see into the soul of the Lord Jesus. And at the core, what he longs for is for his Father to be glorified. Jesus working this world, what he was doing in this world, verse 4, was so that the Father would be honoured. It is his relationship with his Father that shapes everything that that he says and everything that he does. In chapter 14, Jesus said these words, I will do whatever you ask for in my name, he's talking to the disciples, so that the Son of Man may bring glory to the Father. So the Son glorifies the Father. And it's the Father that honours, that glorifies the Son. This, This is why Jesus prays this prayer, because the Son does not glorify himself. No, the Father glorifies the Son. And what about the Spirit? What does he do? What have we learned about him in the last few weeks? Well, he takes what is Jesus and he makes it known to the disciples. Like we saw last week, he is like a floodlight drawing attention, bringing glory to Jesus, all he has said and all he has done. In fact, in conversation with the others last week, I learned that the actual word for the floodlight that puts a bright spotlight on the key actor on the stage is it's actually called the super trooper. So the Holy Spirit is the super trooper, bringing glory, putting a spotlight on Jesus. And this interplay of other person-centered glory-giving is what we see in these chapters and in these verses of how the God of the universe relates within himself. At the heart of the universe is an other person-centered, loving, glory-giving God in eternal relationship with each other. Within himself. It explains how we too are made to be other person centered, God centered in our relationships. When we live like that, we key into the very heart of the universe. It's not just how we were made, it's how the whole universe works. Our prayers are a window into our soul. And in the first few words of this prayer, Jesus gives us a window not only into the soul of God, but he reveals what is at the heart of the universe, a God who relates in other person-centered, loving relationship within himself from eternity to eternity. So by way of immediate application, other person-centered relationships in this broken world is hard work. In a world broken by the sin of others, in a world broken by our own sin, it is hard work but it is hard work worth doing. It took Jesus to the glory and the sacrifice of the cross. And as we live like him in other person-centered relationship to the glory of God, then what we're doing is keying into the very heart of the universe, the very nature of what God is like. We are truly living in his image.
And it's actually the path to true joy. The joy that comes from being what we were made to be. Living in a way that keys into the very heart of who God is and how he made us in his image. And this very relational core that runs through these verses continues in verses 2 and 3. God is a God of relationship. And this relational shape of reality shapes the way that Jesus speaks about eternal life. When you think of eternal life, what words, what ideas come into your mind? How would you define eternal life? I think we normally think of eternal life as as going to heaven after we die, being with God forever, having our sufferings, having our struggles removed, living eternally in a world that's put right. But have a look at the way that Jesus describes eternal life in verse 2 of chapter 17. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's a very relational way to think about eternal life and define it, isn't it? And when understood like that, this means that eternal life begins the very moment you put your trust in Jesus, the very moment you begin to know Jesus and so know the God who made you. You were made, you were created to know God, not just to know about God, stuff about him, no, to know him personally, as a person. And the way that we know God is to know Jesus. Jesus said this earlier in John, in chapter 14, verse 7, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You see Jesus, you see God the Father. Jesus fully reveals the person of God. He is God in the flesh. You come to know him, you come to know the very God who came to give you life, the God who is your judge, the God who longs for you to know him and to love him back. So let me ask you this. Do you know this God yet, personally? Maybe you don't yet. Maybe you think that knowing God would just be too impossible, a task, too, as if that could happen. As if you could really know God. The astounding claim of Jesus is that if we know him, we know our God. And these words just aren't the words of, they aren't the words of a raving lunatic. The deceptions, self-deceptions of a man 2,000 years ago, they're not that at all. They're the words of God come in the flesh. And his life and his death and his resurrection back up his astounding words and show that what he says is true. Relationships are the very fabric of life. If we have relationships, we can lose almost anything else, you know, money, power, job, health. But if you have positive relationships, then there is still meaning and purpose in life. We know relationships are the the stuff of life. What many fail to comprehend is that what we were made for is the greatest relationship of all, relationship with our Creator and together with others, that lasts forever. And if you haven't come to know this great God yet, then then why not start getting to know him by getting to know Jesus? If you need help in working out how to do that, how to start and begin, let me encourage you to talk to someone who does know Jesus. That's the best way to start. But then Jesus turns his attention from his relationship with his eternal father to praying for those he's about to leave behind. Have a look at verse 6. 
I have revealed you to those whom you have given me out of the world, he says. Here he's speaking about the eleven, the eleven disciples, the ones he will send into the world in his name. Have a look at verse 18, because in this verse we see why Jesus is so keen to pray for these eleven men. He says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. What, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, God the Father sent the Son into the world to complete his work in this world. The Son is the representative of the Father to bring the words of God and the work of God into this world. The Father's work in this world is through his Son. But now Jesus is going back to the Father. But his work is not yet complete. And so he will continue his work, not directly, but as the Father has sent him, so he sends the eleven. The word apostle, that word apostle literally means a sent one. People sent with the authority of the one who sent them. So Karina and I, we've just recently sold our house and bought a new one. Now when it comes time to settle those houses to pay for them, if you want to put it like that. A whole stack of money needs to change hands. And the ownership of those houses needs to also change hands. Now, we won't be there to receive or to hand out the money at the settlement. Our solicitors and the bank will be the ones that represent us in this whole business of transacting the money and transferring ownership of the houses. Our solicitors act as our apostles, if you want to put it like that, our sent ones. We give them authority to act on our behalf as if we were there. Jesus gives the apostles this authority as his sent ones. They carry out his work in this world. They carry out his word to this world. And by the Spirit, he works powerfully to fulfill his purposes through them. Jesus will work through them to continue what he has begun, to do the work of the Father, to gather in the people Saved by God through the power of his word and by the power of the spirit. And when you think about this action plan of God's through the Son, it really is a little bit strange. God's amazing plan, he has this amazing plan to save this lost world, to bring rebels back to him as his family, a great rescue plan to thwart and defeat the work of Satan. So he sends Jesus, his one and only Son, God in the flesh, that part of the plan makes complete sense to me. But now Jesus is leaving. And what does he do? He entrusts this astounding cosmic plan to defeat the powers of evil. And he entrusts that into the hands of 11 men who aren't educated, who are scared, who don't understand, who keep getting it wrong. 11 weak, ordinary, sinful, confused, doubting, misunderstanding, quarrelling men. Now, I'm sure that if these 11 men comprehended what it was that Jesus was saying, one of them would have piped up saying, are you serious, Jesus? I mean, really? Us? You're entrusting this whole venture to us? Are you mad? He's not mad. And history has shown that this plan of the Father and the Son has achieved what they set out to achieve. The gathering in of people from all over the world into this new people of God. Saved by him. Jesus, the night before he dies, prays for these 11 men, knowing that they are going to be at work to continue his work that the Father gave to him. 
But as he prays his prayer, he prays knowing that those who believe in the words of these 11 men, who believe in the apostolic gospel spoken by these sent ones, they will continue on their work. We will see this even more next week. But as we look through this prayer that Jesus prays for these 11 men, it's also a prayer knowing that their work will continue through us. So let's have a look at this prayer of Jesus for the apostles. In verse 6, Jesus says that they were chosen out of the world. They don't belong to this world. And that idea continues to roll through this prayer from Jesus. Have a look at verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Jesus prays for these men because the work they will continue to do will be in a world that is in opposition to them, just as it has been in opposition to him. They will need protection from the world, and this is what he prays for. Jesus was sent by the Father into a world that was broken by sin, into a world in rebellion against the Father, into a world that would not recognise their Creator. And instead, what would the world do? Reject him, curse him, hate him, misunderstand him, and finally kill him. And now Jesus sends the apostles into this same world to be treated in the same way. And so he prays for them because he cares for them and he knows what they're about to face. But he doesn't pray that they would be spared this opposition. No, have a look at verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but they will, you would protect them from the evil one. Satan is at work in this world. The ways of this world are in opposition to God. The ways of this world are the ways of Satan. And so as the world continues in this indifference to God, ignoring the words of God, consider the ways and the works and the words of God as irrelevant to life, Satan celebrates in that, because that's what he's on about. And as the ways of this world stand in opposition to God, so those who are sent by God and his Son into this world, they will be opposed as well. And this prayer of Jesus was answered in the lives of these 11 men. They did experience the opposition of the world. They were rejected, misunderstood, beaten, jailed and killed. But they were protected from the evil one because they never turned their back on Jesus again. Jesus was with them personally by his spirit and he worked through them powerfully. The other thing that Jesus prays for these men is that they would be sanctified in the truth. Have a look at verse 17. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. What exactly is Jesus praying for these disciples? Well, to be sanctified basically means to be set apart to be set apart in particular for God and his work. Jesus sanctified himself. That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? In what way did Jesus sanctify himself? Well, he set himself apart from the world. He lived a different life to the world. He obeyed his Father in everything. He did the work of the Father, spoke the words of the Father. When Jesus says he sanctified himself, it's another way of saying that he obeyed the will of the Father in everything that he did, and a work that actually took him to the cross. That was the end point of his sanctification. And through Jesus' completed work, 
He has sanctified the apostles. He has set them apart from the world to continue the work of God in this world, to continue the work that he has sent them to do. Really, in a sense, this prayer that Jesus prays that they be sanctified in the truth is the same thing as praying that they would be protected from the world and fulfil their role as God's representatives in this world. And the way that this will happen is through the truth. The truth revealed in the person and work of Jesus. You might remember these words from John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth that sanctifies. His message The powerful message of the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. This is what sets the apostles apart from the world. It is this message that will mean they are opposed, hated, rejected, misunderstood. As the world rejects the work on the words of these men, they are rejecting the work and the words of God himself. But what about us? This prayer of Jesus for the apostles, for those that he sends, these eleven, Where do we fit in? Well, as I mentioned before, as he prays this prayer for the apostles, he prays it knowing that those who believe in these words of these 11 men will continue their work. We'll see this even more next week as we look at Jesus' prayer for us in the rest of chapter 17. The apostles are the sent ones with a capital S. We are the sent ones with a little s bringing the message of the apostles about the risen Lord Jesus Christ to a world that needs to hear it, and so continuing the work of Jesus in this world. Paul Owens used the illustration of an ambassador early on in this series, and I want to steal that illustration because it really helps us understand what our role is as those who believe in the apostolic message. Let me introduce to you Brendan Byrne. I suspect you've never heard of him. He's the Australian ambassador to France. What's his job? Well, he's not there to see the sights. He's not there to play the tourist. He's not there to go to the ballet or the rugby or the football. He's in France to promote Australia's interests in that country. He's, his words, his works are to promote Australia, represent Australia in trade negotiations, in, in other international interests. His office is there to assist Australians who might find themselves in trouble in France should they need it. His words and works should not be to promote his own interests, but those of the nation he's been sent to represent. His home is actually Australia, but he's sent abroad to promote the cause of his homeland. Well, we are ambassadors of Jesus in this world. We are here on official business, sent by him. As we speak, we are to speak knowing that our words represent him, knowing that our actions reflect on him. This is the way that Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Why? Because we are ambassadors, that's why. We should live and speak like people who represent the interests of God in this world, because that's actually what we've been sent to do. Now, you might think it's madness that God would entrust his work in this world to the likes of you and me. But that's what he's done. And it brings him astounding glory to do such great work through broken vessels like me and you. 
He works through our weaknesses, through our failures, through our hardships, through our struggles to powerfully continue his work in this world. The work of his son, the work of with this apostolic message. So, so long as we speak that apostolic message of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the coming glory of our King, he is continuing his work through us. Let me finish with these words. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your Son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you sent the apostles and you worked through them to establish your church, to gather in people from all nations to come to know you. We thank you that you continue that work through those who trust in that apostolic message that you sent through them. Lord, we pray that we will be people who live as your ambassadors in this world, as your sent ones. Father, we pray that you would help us to speak your words. Help us to be people who reflect the way that you have made us to live. Reflect the way that you operate within the Trinity in loving other person-centred, God-centred relationships. And in that way, we pray that you would help us to reach a world for Christ, that you would grow your work in this world through our feeble and broken efforts. We pray that you would surprise us in the way that you do that in the coming weeks. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.